Believe in yourself, reach out for your dreams. Don't surrender, there is more than it seems. Hold on and fight, follow your heart. This is your way, love is what you make of it. Hi, this is Dr. Joe Luciani welcoming you to another session of self-coaching for real-life emotional struggle. Whether it's depression, anxiety, relationship conflict, losing weight, or simply handling life's challenges are all addressed. Teaching you to become your own best coach. Well, here we are, and boy, it is a perfect day here in the Northeast, just outside of Manhattan. It is around 70-something degrees, low humidity, blue skies, oh, gorgeous. And if we didn't have the weather to talk about, I don't know what we would do when we when we sit down next to a stranger, what's the first thing that comes up? Well, how's the weather? What? Well, not bad weather today, or it's cold, or it's hot, but it certainly is a great icebreaker when it comes to small talk, isn't it? So my small talk began today with lovely weather. But you know, I complain about it week by week, but today, no complaints. So I'm upbeat today, and I hope you are. Few house cleaning chores before we begin. My book, Unlearning Anxiety and Depression, is now fully functional and available on Amazon after a delay because of distribution and such. But there, there it is. Just go to Amazon and click on to it. And it is a book that I would love for you to take a look at. It's 45 years of evolving this self-coaching program. And the program itself is based on three tenets. One is the motivational coaching that's necessary to get off the dime and sustain your efforts, the cognitive behavioral techniques in order to understand the psychology of what's going on with your struggles, and finally what I call the neuroplasticity of learning how the brain is actually changed through practice. And this is particularly important when dealing with habits, habits of insecurity, habits that have brought us down and and really affected our lives in so many negative ways. So unlearning anxiety and depression, please take a look at it. Definitely buy two copies because if you lose one, then you'll have another one. So there you go. And also uh, my website is selfcoaching.net. You can reach me there and contact me at selfcoaching, or you can uh, go directly to selfcoachinghelp at aol.com. And you not only leave some feedback, but you might have a specific question you might want me to address in these podcasts. And feel free, and I will do that anonymously. Uh, leave a question uh, or a topic you'd like me to cover, or just to specifically respond to some of your questions and struggles. Be glad to apply a self-coaching approach to what you are struggling with. So that being said, I thought today might be a good idea to talk about how we read people. So we're going to talk about some of the cues that we we pick up and we use to, to get that first and second and third and fourth impression of someone to help guide us into a relationship, whether it be a personal relationship or, in my case, a psychological therapeutic relationship. Now, research shows us that words, what someone says, account for only 7% of how we perceive and communicate, whereas our body language exudes 55% of how we're interpreted, and the voice tone, how it comes across, that tone, that accounts for about 
So you see, there are many factors that come into play when trying to get that opinion of someone. And a lot of this is really trained to read the invisible. We're not always consciously saying, let's see, 7%, how are they communicating? 55%, let me check out that body. No, we're, we're, this is just an impression that we get. And a lot of this is intuitive. So the first thing I'd say is when you're introduced to someone, when you're meeting someone, you have to be open-minded. And sometimes you have to practice this because we bring our biases with us. You know, the biggest bias of all is thinking that you're unbiased. We're all biased. We all have prejudices. When we see someone, we, we tend to, not consciously, but we tend to unconsciously have certain biases that uh, affect our interpretation of that person. So what we want to do is put those biases aside very consciously. And we want to be as neutral as possible. So one of the things you really want to be aware of when you're, you're making an acquaintance, when you have to size someone up, the first thing you want to do is try to enter the relationship and leave your biases at the front door. Just come into the relationship as neutral as possible and let, let the relationship itself begin on that foot. So you meet someone. And what's the first thing you typically do? Now, I don't know if we typically do this anymore since COVID, but uh, it's becoming more regular. We shake hands. I know we do a fist bump, but fist bumps, you know what? They don't convey the same thing. A handshake can be very revealing. Yeah, just whether that handshake is firm, whether it's kind of limp and, and wimpy, you know, it's it really does exude a lot of information. And again, a lot of information that body language and such cues elicit is not something that you're going to be fully conscious of. We're trying to bring that forward a bit today. And, you know, you have someone come in and they give you that old firm handshake. Well, there you go. Now there's a pretty assertive guy. Now what's what, what's that conveying, that firm handshake? Well, could be conveying confidence, right? It could be conveying uh, just, just someone attempting to be confident. It's kind of a defensive confidence. So that person comes and is very consciously giving you the grip. I had a guy come in once and shook his hand. And he, I, he, I thought I was going to break the bones in my hand. And it's unlike me to react so personally to a patient. But I said, what the heck are you doing? Why are you crushing my hand? I couldn't help it. I mean, this why he had to do this, as I later found out, this person had a massive insecurity. And his first attempt, he wanted me to know that there was a dominant aspect to him and that he was no wimp. Well, not only did he not convey that, but he, he conveyed to me that he's being a jerk. <laughs> but anyhow, and the weak handshake, what does that convey? Well, someone's a little apprehensive, right? Someone's a bit insecure. They're not quite sure how to just yeah, maybe give you the hand, a little bit of a shake. And, and that's okay, too. But it does convey what? A little insecurity, lack of self-confidence. Uh, and sometimes it's just uh, trying to be polite. So you have to you have to not jump to conclusions. You know, one thing I, I don't want you to do after listening to this podcast today is to like, like reading a dream book 
and just every every kind of you, you when you dream of a, a teapot it means this or a horse it means that so all these things don't have a a direct meaning it's very very important that you you know you pay attention to the context of what's going on so that initial meeting that initial context that's where you get the real first impression of someone again not consciously but you get a feeling impression of that person that you meet the next time you shake hands with someone don't try to impress with that firm grip don't do that you know take take the risk be yourself shake that hand and if you're doing a fist bump i don't know what to tell you <laughs> you know don't don't bump too aggressively what can i say you come away with bleeding knuckles it's not a good thing uh, let's let's keep it in in kind of my context so i meet a patient for the first time and i try to keep an open mind i'm trying not to be biased pay attention to that handshake it's conveying some messages now i have in my office i have a couch and then I have two chairs. And it's interesting. It's almost like a Roshark, you know, the inkblot test, where, where people come in and they'll look around. Someone will grab a chair and sit down quite comfortably. And it does exude some confidence. Some people will actually pick up the chair and move it closer. Now, that's something in and of itself. You know, that's, that does show a, a kind of overconfidence, perhaps, uh, a sense of security, but it also intimidates, intimidate in the sense that what is this person trying to do? They're trying to let me know that they're going to set the boundaries, that the boundaries that I have set up in my office are not suitable to them. So they're going to pick up that chair and they're going to come in within three feet of me. And they're letting me know that they're not going to hand over the reins to me that easily. And this is, this is why we, we need to realize that there are many interpretations. But as you start to look at the whole picture, these interpretations make more and more sense. So we read all those cues, you know, just watch it, someone's behavior. And I, and I should say, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have a checklist. I'm not, I really, I really don't go through where are they sitting? How is that handshake? These are the things that kind of start to accumulate, the data that starts to accumulate based on your impression. And then I look at how they're dressed, their appearance. Uh, one thing that I notice is that shoes, shoes can, <laughs> I know, shoes can tell us a lot. Uh, nowadays, it's no longer a cue that we can use to assess because everybody comes in with sneakers, running shoes. So that's, that's kind of gone. But in the old days, when people would come in with slacks and shoes and sometimes suits and jackets, especially the men, tip of the shoe might be uh, needing a bit of uh, shoe polish where everything else might be pristine. You know, so what does that tell us? Well, it kind of suggests that, uh, you know, the obvious gets taken care of. But you know what? The details, eh, maybe they don't matter so much. So maybe that person is a bit disingenuous. And the shoes give that person away. So in, in, in poker, it's called a tell, you know. So, so you, could, you could kind of read between the lines sometimes. Someone will come in dressed casually, but neatly. Someone will come in with a T-shirt, um, a ripped jeans, or, and then you, you, it's hard to say because nowadays their styles change. So, so there are many things that a psychologist looks for 
that you may not look for or care to look for, but appearance certainly affects us. And facial expressions that, that give us you know, just so much information. Uh, someone with a scowl may not even realize it, but to you, the receiver of that scowl, it can be quite threatening. Someone with a smile can be quite inviting. When I, I did my, my dissertation on facial expression, I developed a, a personality test called the Facial Interpersonal Perception Inventory, the FIPI, in case you're interested. And what I found in my research was that the interpretation of facial expression is, is pan-cultural. The, the angry face is an angry face in South Africa, in Europe, in the United States, in Australia. So the expression of happiness, the eyes get bigger, the smile, these things are pan-cultural. They, they are part of the human instinct. And facial expression is really not something that you have to learn. You can become more refined in what you're looking for and looking at. But nevertheless, it will affect you whether you're aware of it or not. So the person that's accommodating, uh, gracious, patient with you, these are all positive things that draw us into a, a more positive regard for that person. The person that's defensive, tight-lipped, squinty eyes, arms folded across their chest, and that, that downward turn to the, to the lips. Well, that, that person is going to affect us in a way that we, we kind of want to kind of sit back a little and protect ourselves. You know, there's something in us that has to read this. This is part of survival. I mean, how would you know friend or foe? You have to be able to assess someone. And emotionally speaking, we do the same thing. So when we read someone adequately, we get, we get a pretty good picture of what we're, we're going to be getting as the relationship ensues. You know, one thing I, I notice as a psychologist, and this goes for any relationship, whether someone is always late or early. Now, invariably, people will come at a certain time for a session, but it's, it's so uncanny. Uh, I had one patient who would always come approximately 10 minutes late for every session. And I mean within 30 seconds of 10 minutes late. And every session, that person would go through a litany of the train came by, there were too many traffic lights, the traffic, always always all these reasons, and they, they believe these reasons. And it sounded like this person really wanted to be on time, but no matter what they did, fate, life, circumstances, and they were always 10 minutes late. So you would have to ask yourself, could it be coincidence that the train, uh, the traffic, the red lights all conspire to just create a 10 minute lapse? You don't think so. So you start to wonder, well, what's going on? Why would someone come late all the time? Well, you could say, well, they don't have very, very good management skills. Okay, fair enough. Uh, on the other hand, uh, it could be more nefarious in a psychological sense that they, they are wanting to control when that session starts. They want to control when they have to stop doing whatever they're doing at home and get to a session on time. So the person that's chronically late, and especially the person that chronically late with almost a routine in terms of the 10 minutes or so, 
you know, that person is, is really making a statement, you know, almost like the person with the chair setting the boundaries. That person is saying, this session will begin when I get here. And as distressed as they are, which seems to fly, you know, opposite of, of what they're telling you, the, the, what they're really saying is, uh, you know, I, I, I can't hand over this control to you. I can't let you dominate and tell me I have to be here at this time. I'll dig my heels in, doggone it, and we'll begin this session when I arrive. And I'll apologize for it, and I'll then mitigate the fact that I'm always late. But nevertheless, I shall go on setting the boundaries. And so this is a, another manifestation of insecurity. So the insecure person will establish such boundaries. And what about the person that comes early? Now, is that a malady? Of course not. Uh, but that person may be showing good time management skills. They may be showing respect. But they may also be showing an anxiety or a bit of insecurity about, oh, my God, what if I'm late? Uh, I can't possibly be late. What if what if Joe Luciani gets angry and I'm, I'm two minutes late? So it could be showing insecurity. It could be positive. It could be negative. And so you're getting the point that a lot of interpreting what goes on can go one way or the other. And where I'm going with this is to try to help you understand that intellectually, that may be the the not so effective way of getting a complete picture of somebody. Because I think that since like the person that comes late, that could be someone trying to set boundaries or it could be someone having time management problems. But before we tend to develop a bias or an interpretation, we are affected by that. So you need to start to realize that you are needing to develop those intuitive you know, that, that 2020 psychological vision. And that's going to affect you, not so much intellectually, but if you kind of relax into it, you'll get a feeling for someone. And that's what we call that first impression. So let's say someone, someone comes in, you've shaked hands, you've established where they're sitting, you've checked out their shoes, they finally got there on time, now what? Well, now you start to talk and you look in their eyes. The eyes can tell you a lot, especially someone who has a really hard time looking you in the eye. You know, just the eyes kind of dart back and forth. You know, that, that, that person may not want to feel exposed. You know, it's an intense situation. You know, a, a therapist looking at you, staring at you, and, and you may want to deflect that a bit. And the more insecure you are, the more you would want to deflect that. And then on the other hand, since I'm presenting the both sides of the coin and all of this, on the other hand, maybe it's just a matter of it just feels unnatural. We're not used to that kind of a glare, that kind of intensity from someone talking to us. So what does it all mean? Well, it all adds up to this. You can start to become a little bit more cognizant of the nuances of body language and how tight one is and whether the legs are crossed or not and the arms are folded and and the tone is oh, tone is very important you know how does it sound to you you know is it intense or too intense is it relaxed so all these things form an impression and we call that the first impression and that 
all of that data now comes piling in and the person is about to walk out. You shake hands, they walk out or in, in any relationship. And now you're left with that first impression. Well, did you like that person? Were they someone you feel you want to get to know a little better? Or was it someone that you want to flee from? And take a party situation. And you're at a party and you're talking to someone. And at first, they, they just seem so intelligent and have so many great experiences to talk about. But then they never stop talking. And they prattle on and on and on. And meanwhile, you're starting to fidget because basically you're trying to be polite. So your body language is starting to convey, uh, listen, guys, uh, I need to get out of here. And this is uh, getting a little bit out of hand. But the person isn't really observing your body language. And that person goes on talking and talking and talking. So you see, you'll leave that person with the impression, that first impression, not for me, too many red flags. This person is not a giving person. This is a taker. And as much as that person, the taker person, might be saying, wow, I'm a great conversationalist and I offer all this to people, they, they do it because it is ego gratifying for them. And there's no give and take. And there's no reciprocity. So that's a selfish person. You know, it's hard to uh, imagine that it could be the other, one, the other way, but it can be because someone who just doesn't have good social uh, kind of antenna may be talking and talking because they're, they're not really picking up that you don't want to hear it. They may mistakenly think that what they're saying to you is really of interest to you. So that's a confident person, but maybe a person who just doesn't have the, the social antenna to really read someone else's darting eyes or behavior that indicates that, you know, I'm strangling here, uh, give me a break. So it's really important to read. Now, some people are almost impossible to read. Some people come across and we say, wow, this is a fantastic person. I really want to get to know this person. Now, if all of the data that you have suggests that that's how you feel, that's how they affect you, that's the impression that you have, well, there's a fairly good chance that this might be a worthwhile relationship to pursue. However, and here I go again, one side and the other, there are sociopathic people in the world who are so good at schmoozing us that they, they just come across like silk and they can tell us, you know, wonderful things and they seem glib and they're telling us how wonderful we are and what great listeners we are and and meanwhile, this person is a quintessential manipulator. They have exquisite social skills. They're just not real. They're manipulative. So that's not a genuine person. And sometimes, and I guess this is my point here, sometimes your impression of someone can be quite erroneous. Uh, all the right reasons in terms of clicking off the handshake, the appearance, the shoes, the, the boundaries, all of those can you know, be checked off as being adequate. And yet that person may be a real deadbeat. So are first impressions valuable? Yes. Now, that said, you have to always be willing to understand that a first impression should never be the last impression. And that's why we have to keep adding 
through experience to the data. Consistency is really important. Inconsistency throws up red flags, which require us to maybe reshuffle the deck and reestablish what's going on. Who are we talking to here? This person isn't the same person I met at the party two weeks ago. What's changed? So we are always trying to evolve in a relationship. And the relationships that we want to sustain are those that check all the right boxes, but remain consistent and consistent in a reciprocal way with our needs and their needs. There is, there is chemistry and there is chemistry. You're not going to get along with anyone unless you are manipulative yourself, unless you're a yes person and so insecure that you have to please everybody. And therefore you're what we used to call a glad hander. And you go around saying, hey, how you doing? And you get into these conversations and meanwhile, you'd rather be home watching TV. So it's important for you to find the chemistry that's right for you. And that's not always easy to do. Also, and I should in include that also becoming more accessible yourself to people requires that you kind of don't let your own insecurities kind of trip you up. Don't you go into a relationship and try to crush that handshake, you know, try to be aware that you need to really try to be who you are. That's the easy part, the hard part. Being who you are means being unbiased with your own insecurity. Best way I could think of to do that is when you meet someone and you want to be unbiased in that relationship. You want your best self to come forward and you want to be represented adequately in this meeting. Whether you're meeting someone that you want to date or someone that you want to befriend, it doesn't matter. You want your best self to come forward. So how do you do that? Especially if you have some, some insecurity struggles, how in the world do you do that? Well, that is the important question. How in the world do you transcend your own hesitations, your own boundary issues, your own insecurities, and how do you bring your best self forward, especially in a relationship that you feel intuitively you would like to cultivate? Well, the single best way that I could think of is you have to abandon your introspection of who you are, your insecurity, your self-doubt, your feelings of worth, your need to impress. You need to abandon all that introspection and become really in a Zen fashion, become one with the conversation. That way, you are really then allowing your true self to speak through you rather than one foot in, one foot out kind of conversing where you're wondering, you know, we call it the observing ego, where you're wondering, how am I doing? How do I sound? Am I impressing this person? Do they like me? When you become solely involved in the conversation, then you are abandoning the self-doubt, the self-criticism, the what-ifing, and you're allowing yourself to just become that in you, which is natural. And then that's the instinctual force. The energy in you, that's a natural energy comes forward. That will always be your best. The more you try to be something you're not, eh, doesn't work.
doesn't work. It doesn't come across the same way. The energy is different. It's different. To be who you are requires a leap of faith. Try it. Now, one way to practice this is when you're with someone you really feel comfortable with, someone you fully trust, a relative, close friend. And, you know, maybe either while it's happening or in retrospect, look at, look at how you did in that conversation where you were totally at ease. And you'll see that you were totally into the conversation. Because with that person where you have complete and total trust, you weren't sitting back saying, oh, I wonder what they're thinking. I wonder how I'm doing. No, you were totally within the context of that conversation. So that's the that's the the clue to presenting your best self. So aside from reading someone else, which is, you know, you need to ferret out those people that you want to approach and those people that you want to avoid. And sometimes the red flags are glaring and they're there right from the start. And that first impression is something that gives you a need to flee that relationship. The more that you begin to become aware and sensitive to your own gut feelings, and the gut is very important. You know, if someone leaves you unsettled, that says something. Intellectually, you might say, I don't understand why. They, they, they just seem so nice. And yet, and yet I just feel somewhat uh, just almost, you know, I don't, I don't know, just squeamish about that. Well, whatever it is, you see, you want to trust your gut as being a valuable part of your equation. And let's say you've just finished a conversation with someone who was thoroughly impressive, someone on paper that you would love to relate to. And you go home that night and you're just not, just something in you. Well, that something in you is your intuition. You know, and it's saying something, that something's awry. And it may not be that you could pinpoint it consciously. But you see, we our antenna, our social antenna, much more than our intellectual. You know, we perceive, you know, the, the intuitive function is the ability to kind of see around corners and to interpret things that aren't in the obvious. Sometimes it's just a reaction. So value your reactivity, value your impressions of people, and by all means, keep in mind, you know, you, you will do very well to establish that natural rapport because you want to give someone else that first impression of you as well as you getting the first impression of someone else. So if you want to find relationships in your life, if you want to maximize uh, the, the fluidity of bringing people in and flushing people out, What's most important is that when your gut, your intuition is driving you towards someone, that's where you need to let them get a glimpse, a first impression of you that's lasting. Well, I hope I've made a good impression today. Talk about pan-cultural. I would love to know how self-coaching reads in different parts of the world, whether it's applicable, whether whether all the things I say from this kind of microcosmic view from Northeast New Jersey, if it applies to you and down under or up somewhere up under wherever you may be, uh, let me know. I'd love to hear from you. And on that note, 
I would like to say, visit my website where you can learn a lot more about this whole self-coaching thing. So until next time, remember that being victimized by emotional struggle, it's not an option. And by definition, victims are powerless. And you are not powerless. And remember, everything's hard until you make it simple. So join me every week. And how about we make it simple together? Reach out for your dreams Don't surrender, there is more than it seems Hold on and fight, follow your heart This is your way, life is what you make of it Believe in yourself, reach out for your dreams Don't surrender, there is more than it seems Hold on and fight, follow your heart